Once upon a time, there was a planet filled with people possessing many different types of talent. Now, some of the people on this planet always charged others for the benefit of their talent, while yet some other people decided, at least on occasion, to give their talent without charge. And one of these persons who gave their talent discovered that great blessing may be found a hair's breadth away. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh my life, watching America. Oh my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Delighted, absolutely thrilled. You've heard me say these things before because they're true whenever I say them. And they're no less true when I speak of Joshua Coombs. He is the author of Do Something for Nothing. Now, is that a form of, uh, if you will, enterprise of masochism not to be paid? No, it's Do Something for Nothing for Others. I'm adding the others, but that's precisely what he's about. Joshua Coombs, a Britisher, and I can have him on the show because I know our show is entitled Watching America. But you see, he's, he's able to be here because he's very concerned about America and moreover has done work in the United States, as we shall shortly learn. But Joshua Coombs is what Americans would call a hairstylist and Brits would call a hairdresser. But he decided that on his off time, he would apply that ability, that skill, if you will, for those who could not afford it. And from that grew a larger and larger and larger movement with a uh, absolutely up curve, which doesn't seem to end, by encouraging others to do the same, to help those who are less fortunate, not necessarily always by money. People always uh, default to money, but actually by what you can do. Where's your talent? Where's your ability? Can you at least alleviate some misery? He says he realized that he couldn't fix every social ill. But by taking out some, well, shears, some scissors and trimmers, he at least could fix one social ill, one head at a time. It is with great pleasure that I introduce Joshua Coombs. Welcome, Joshua. Thank you very much for having me. And yeah, very happy to be here and, and, and share some of this. Well, let's start at the beginning. I always say that. And the beginning for most of us means coming out of our mummy's womb. Uh, and then we're plonked into a world. And you were uh, in a little town in, in England. Tell us about it. Well, yeah, actually, you know, technically it's a, a city, but, um, you know, it's uh, Exeter, which is in the southwest of England. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's grown and grown since I left. And, and growing up there actually was, uh, you know, it's in the countryside, but it's 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 still kind of for me, it was growing up on a, a council estate. And it was um, my mum and my two sisters, who, you know, there was a, a happy home and I had love. But, yeah, school in for me was, um, I think, uh, a time where it was a big transition. But I mean, 
you know, Exeter as a place to grow up, I, I can't deny going back there. It, it wasn't too bad, but I think anywhere you are, it's made me realize that, yeah, the social dynamics of where you grow up, it doesn't really matter kind of the surroundings and whether there's green hills on the uh, horizon, because, um, yeah, for me, it was, it was, it took a long time to sort of feel like I had, um, I don't know, more than just kind of like the options that were available to me through, through the education system I was in for me for a long time, that's kind of, uh, it was difficult for me to kind of see beyond the walls of the, the city, the small city that I grew up in. Well, um, we are predominantly talking to an American audience, so you might want to um, explain what council housing is. Uh, most Americans are not familiar uh, with that term. Yeah, so I guess I guess not exactly as um, – yes, it's, it's similar to, you know, a cul-de-sac of houses that are provided for by um, – yeah, I guess you'd call it like not necessarily the projects because it wasn't high-rises. It was just like houses, but you've got, you've got different streets and roads that are like um, – covered by the government and kind of at least in some majority and 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 that was kind of i guess is the financial aspect that's that's the most yeah, significant it's, it's, difference between owning your home on uh, you know yeah it's, it's 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 offset by government uh financing to help uh families who live in in those homes um okay yeah. well you so you you didn't really think of one particular clear option as a, a career choice um but some things did make their way to having a tremendous influence on you one of which is you receive a guitar And that opens up a whole new world. So tell us the circumstances about how you received that guitar and what it did for you. Well, actually, you know, I've got to be really honest. There was one instrument before the guitar that was quite important for me. That was a skateboard. I think for me, it was it was it was trying to find something at that age, which was, look, I wasn't I wasn't doing one well school, and and I was I was finding kind of more and more frustration at an early age, sort of 14, 15, 16, within that environment. Um, so I was looking for something else. I was looking for something else to to be able to express how I felt and to be able to express. Um, who I still thought, what, what I thought I still had to give, to be honest. And, um, and yeah, that, that was first of all, skateboarding on the streets. And then it was, um, yeah, my mum, my, my grand chipping in for a guitar for me. And, and that was something I really wanted after listening to a few bands. I used to stay up late on the, um, on a Tuesday night. Cause there was a show on radio one over here. It was called the punk show. And mm-hmm. I remember having the radio, even though, you know, I'm, I'm 34 now, so I still was at this uh, the time where I was holding the, the speakers of my small stereo I had close to my head, so no one woke, woke up. And and I just heard this music come through the airwaves for me that was, albeit maybe 25, 30 years later than um, when punk happened in seven. I was just going to say, because were you listening to the, the, the Stranglers and the Boomtown Rats and the Sex Pistols? I mean... it was. It was a bit of a mix. It was some stuff that was older, some stuff that was newer. There's a lot of a resurgence of a lot of punk music. To be honest, you know, it, it morphed and changed and 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 took new directions and never went away. But um, it was all different kinds of 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 sort of you know, I suppose micro genres within punk. But I just remember there were some bands and some songs I heard that just woke me up in a way that I, you know, I heard so many people felt the same with this with this genre of music, which was there was something in there for you that offered a chance beyond the, uh, I suppose the, I don't know, the the quite what can be quite like a linear um, upbringing for some people. And and for me, it was it was wanting a guitar from listening to these songs. And um and yeah, and then once I got that, it was it was amazing because it was just suddenly just learning a few chords i felt like i I found this uh energy and this output to be able to um to be able to use and 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 this guitar in my hands it was a way that i could use my hands that um i just i don't know it felt good and i the good thing is with punk music is you only have to learn a few a few chords to get started so that was also quite an appeal for me not being all that academic so um yeah that was the beginning of, of a whole new trajectory for me 
So you like the tactile of uh, being able to caress your guitar and uh, and and to hold it and to to play it. It gave you an identity, if you will. Um, you know, other kids were probably listening to Morrissey and things of this nature. Uh, what was your favorite punk tune, incidentally? I'm just curious. The one that grabbed you. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean the the honestly. So the, the the Clash. The 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 first record I got was actually the U.S. version of their self self titled album. Um, as far as like the first punk record I, I got hold of, and that had a track. So it's it's called White Man in Hammersmith Palace, and it's a it's a a beautiful mix between loud punk music, but also has this reggae infused um, inspiration, which a lot of their music did too. So it, it also, I realized straight away, I was like within this kind of this, this, this song, there was, there was two different things going on and the lyrics are uh, political and charged and expressive and strummers shouting kind of at the top of his voice. And it was just, yeah, just just a big that's a track for me that, that really um, hit somewhere in me that stayed with me ever since. So there's kind of synthesis and amalgamation of of genres and styles, and then you know London calling and all the rest of it. Um, okay, so you 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 are now having to choose some career, and uh, in Britain there's this big emphasis. By the time you're 16, and and you know whether or not you've decided to do O levels or A levels or just simply get out, you've got to choose something. And you eventually chose hairstyling, or as I say in Britain, of course, being a hairdresser. What what made you go in that direction? Well, actually, Alan, so what happened for me was it was after school, I did try college for a year. I didn't get any um, of my grades, GCSEs, but I, I went to college for a year afterwards and tried to do this media course where you didn't need any many entry, entry requirements. And then I didn't get on with that. And that's when I was in, I, I, I was in a band then. So I formed a band with some friends, um, people who I met outside of my school. And, and there was this venue called the Cavern in Exeter where I grew up that really kind of like helped so many kids like me out and kind of got us on stage and helped put out our first EP. And anyway, my, my point being that the, the music was my life, for, I, I suppose, from 18 until about 24. And, and that is actually when, when all of that stuff stopped and calmed down a bit for me. It was mid twenties. I walked in as an adult to a salon and said, uh, actually, can you train me? And, and the reason for that was, um, interesting, interestingly enough, actually, it was on a trip. I was away in New York with my pal. And I remember I saw someone outside a salon checking this woman's hair in the natural light. And suddenly the way he was, the way he was looking at her and the way he was engaged in her haircut and how she looked in this creative way, I hadn't, I hadn't seen it like that before back home where I grew up. It was sort of granny salons on the corner and, and perms and, and it didn't, I didn't see the side of the industry that was super creative, which has always, always existed. So it was from this, this passing moment actually that I saw something in it for me. I thought, well, look, I play guitar. I like using my hands. I'm not very good at DIY and, and like that kind of like, um, you know, uh, hands-on work. But I thought, well, I can play guitar. How hard can it be cutting hair? But it turns out I was, I was naive, but it was the right decision because it took a while to get started. But walking in there mid twenties, it was, um, it was really humbling because most of the time you train when you're 16 and you're washing people's hair. And I was doing that at, at 24, 25 and I did a fast track way of training. So I got all, all of that done in, in a year and I was, I was qualified within about 12 months. So you began to approach it as an art and no doubt became familiar with predecessors, you know, uh, who had been people like Vidal Sassoon who were putting their mark um, as far as style was concerned through the 60s right up to the contemporary. Uh, so you get a job uh, and you do your apprentice and you continue to cut hair. 
uh, and then you start to encounter people in need. How did that come about? And first of all, if we can just do a back up a, a wee bit, when you as a child used to see people in need, um, which you can see all over the world readily without difficulty, what was your reaction? Was it fear? Was it sympathy? Was it empathy? Was it fascination? The first time you was, encountered really poor people. It was curiosity to begin with. It was I was curious to to know why, you know, walking past even in, in smaller towns and especially bigger cities in the UK, you're gonna see people, you know, everywhere you go. And and I think at a younger age, going going back to when I was much younger, I remember asking my mum those kind of questions. And she, you know, she empathetically did kind of try to explain as best she can that look, people grow up in different situations and sometimes things happen in people's lives and there was, there was an honesty there to the fact that we're not always in control of what happens to us. But I think, you know, I, I tried my best to understand it. Then. And of course, then you, you grow up and you kind of, there is part of you, that you get on with your life and your own things. And that was me for music for a long time. And I'd still see people on the street, but I'd always think, well, you know, I sort of fell into that trap of thinking, I hope, I feel, I feel better if it was the fact that someone had made some bad choices. Because if they do, it means I can walk past and think, yeah, yeah, well, they, you know, not they deserve to be there, but there's probably something that happened that very well led them to be where they're at right now. Um, so but, let's you know, let you off the hook, so to speak. Yeah, I think I yeah. think so. And it's important to address kind of the fact that, you know, that that it's not easy to always walk past people every single day and 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 be thinking, you know, kind of so empathetically with people's stories. It hurts sometimes. But I, I look, that was my kind of my younger experience is what I've seen so much on the street now is when you're at a small age, most of the time you are curious. And that was the main thing that I was kind of um thinking about then. But from the salon, look, when I started working in the salon, I realized quite quickly that the the role that I played as a hairdresser or hairstylist is is it's of course about this transaction where you're you're getting somebody come in one of your clients to make you you know sort of to, to make them feel good to make them look good to walk out there feeling great and confident with their actual look in the mirror but quite quickly I realized that my role as a person listening to them um, being there behind them in the chair you have to put your trust in the person who's cutting your hair and I think that side of it really um i hadn't expected you know people talking about their lives and yes, what happens yes. in, a, in a deeper in a deeper way you know yes. and and that element of, of what i did it led me out to the street well i just got to interject here and just tell you yes, i always when yeah. i had my hair done back when i had hair <laughs> i've still got a wee bit on either side and a beard but i'm essentially bald uh, but back when I had hair, and I don't know how, how, how fondly I remember those days with shampoo and it was wonderful. Um, but I always thought of, of hairstylists as being the poor man's analyst. <laughs> I mean, you could just download and, and you weren't paying $200 an hour or, or $120 an hour or, or the equivalent in pounds. So you're quite right. I mean, you, 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 people will open up to people in your industry uh, amazingly where, where they won't in other environs uh, uh, at all. So let's let's get back to the actual first time that you picked up um, your your comb and trimmers and, and what have you, and you thought, you know what, I'm going to apply this to this individual. How did that go? What was the circumstances? And, and basically, how did they respond? And how did you feel afterwards? 
Well, the the first time it happened was one evening after work. I used to try and make some some extra cash by doing a few clients uh, here and there outside of the usual hours I'd work in the salon. And it was one evening in 2015, and I was on the way to a friend's house, and I um I walked past somebody who was experiencing homelessness at the time. There was a man outside a, a supermarket, and um, I'd seen him a few times before. I'd got to know him, and and it was a hello and a cup of tea that I'd always used. I'd try and buy someone a cup of, a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, drop some pocket change when you had it. Those are things I think a lot of people do when, when, they, when, they, when they see people or when they feel compassionate towards this. But this time I remembered I had my things in my backpack, which was uh, scissors. I've got these cordless clippers that kind of need a bit of a charge and then you can use them without a wire on the street. And um, I'd never cut hair outside before, but I thought to myself, well, yeah, I've got everything I need. Why not offer this person a haircut? And I did. And, and he said, yes. And, and in that, you know, in the next hour or so that I spent with him because it's not as easy to get it done in half an hour as you would in the salon or 45 minutes. I set up these things um, next to him, grabbed some extra cardboard and, um, you know, even a little crepe for him to kind of sit down. So it was a bit more comfortable. And, and suddenly I was, I was cutting and I, in that, in that, time I, I was able to connect with someone way more than I ever had before who was in the situation and you know every article that I'd read every statistic every overwhelming view of this from the outside and the thousands of people that account for this worldwide millions it's 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 it made me quite aware like it was a real punch in the face of how important actually my 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 skill well, it was skill as a hairdresser but it was the conversation underneath it was just like spending some time with someone this way he began talking to me about his life and what had been going on and I was trying not to pry and definitely that first time I was thinking a little bit too much about what questions I could and couldn't ask and I think that's relaxed a, a lot for me that inner dialogue which I think is you know we'll come to that maybe later that's I think part of the problem um but yeah in this moment I was able to to get down on his level to to not only give the haircut but to feel this isolation too as well the footsteps walking past to become part of the street as he was for a bit so there was a great empathy based on the the physicality and the actual elements of being on the street but then there was also this really positive kind of part of it that I realized like I've got to go out and do this more because when I when I handed him the mirror at the end it was really cool you know I saw someone who had his shoulders up a bit higher and and was looking out of the world in a different way and super charismatic person anyway who actually just was almost like a bit a bit of a jig and a dance afterwards and saying hello to people who who walked past and I you know it, it just immediately put value on what I had to give which I didn't realize and I didn't get told was would be of any value to anyone before and, I, and it was it was um it was that moment that led to many many more interactions like that Just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I'm delighted to say that my guest is Joshua Coombs. He's the author of a book and a movement called Do Something for Nothing. I should explain that Joshua uh, is a hairstylist. He realized that he couldn't fix every social ill, but he could at least cut hair. And for those who couldn't afford it, and uh, he would decide to apply himself to helping them to be able to, well, just have a different look to themselves and, if you will, refurbish their body and uh, bring a little boost to their walk and stride. He was able at least to make a transformation one head at a time, indeed, with his shears, trimmers and scissors and a comb. Uh, 
Um, so I was going to ask you, and you answered it. Uh, I thought the first time you did it, did it occur to you that this was going to be not a singular event, but that you were going to continue to do it? And it sounds as though you did come to that conclusion. When you are uh, doing this, do you find that there is a, an unintentional spectacle aspect to it where people are looking on, um, either amused, bemused or curious? And what impact does it have on others, the observers, when they see you cutting um, a virtual stranger's uh, hair in public on the street? It's a really good question because actually it's something that um, I haven't explored that all much before, all that much before in other conversations, and it's and it it happens a lot. So people will walk by, and of course there is a certain head turning aspect to seeing someone, especially in the Western world, get their hair cut on the street. I mean, if places I've been to, you know, India and South America, it's it's part of the day to day. But mm-hmm. but that happening in the middle of of uh, of London, yeah, it, it was it, people would stop, and you know what would happen is. It was great because a lot of people would ask what was going on. They'd say, is, is this person? And then they'd talk to whoever was hair was cut. And I'd always introduce them and it would create this this conversation, this bond between them. I'd always try and direct that conversation to the individual who uh, uh, whose hair I was cutting. The reason being that that's what this is about for me. It's about visibility for a, them. A true inclusiveness. Yeah, they've, they've got a voice. They've got mm. their life. They've got their, their stories, their aspirations, their hopes, their dreams, like we all have. We've just forgotten about the fact that they're so sometimes invisible that we don't have the chance to stop and listen. And in a busy city, it turns out, even somewhere like London or New York or wherever else I've done this, people have got a bit of time to stop. We're all rushing around with blinkers on. I get it. We got families to feed and we got jobs to get to and we got health, you know, medical bills to pay. But we have sometimes, I believe, through the work I've done, got more time than we think to stop and smell the roses and in this case, interact with people who are on the street around you and for me that's such a beautiful part of this is that sometimes you end up with two or three people around you or five people and actually a joke because depending on the country you know that that really depends so in the uk or america yeah maybe four or five people maximum when i have been cutting hair in places like india 20 or 30 people stop and before you know it you've got chai and you've got everything else but it's like it's beautiful (laughs) because because i i see this as what the most important reason why I do any of this stuff, it's it's about initially visibility and then listening because I truly believe that if you start going out and having conversations with people whose life may look very different than yours from the outside, and in this case, my work, people who are exp- experiencing homelessness, you're going to find so many similarities. You're going to find the nuances of people's life that you can relate to. No longer is it this stigmatized, you know, word like homelessness that can carry so many... Um, Connotate, you know, so many misconceptions. Um, you're listening to somebody, um, and yeah, just that that side of things. It will always stop people. Sometimes people give money. Sometimes people buy drinks or food. And yeah, there's the odd person who, who there's been a couple in the past who've said, "I hope you're going to clear clean that hair up when when you leave." And there's a do-gooding citizen <laughs> who who's worried about the hair, and they're doing their own do something for nothing, which is really sweet. Yes. Um, so I say, okay, yeah, let's like, I'll make sure that happens. I'm, you know, they're on top of things, which is, which is great. Well, when, uh, when you started this, you were not part of a large organization. You were just one individual. However, your stance, your, uh, magnanimous attitude towards others has be truly become uh, infectious and others have, uh, followed suit and done the same thing, uh, in different capacities. And so now there's a, an, an international movement, uh, of, of 
basically do something for nothing. People doing all kind of manifestations of, of kindness and, and acts of charity and goodwill and love. Has that become a bit of a burden to you, uh, making that transition from being the singular person who's just doing something on the street when you, when you felt so led, now to being a spokesperson, uh, an author? Uh, it, it is basically amplified to a much higher level. Are there bonuses and minuses with it? And if so, what are they? Yeah, well, it's, they're like everything in life. You know, there is, <clears throat> there's certain elements that if you want to scale anything and you want to, or, or, you know, let's rephrase that. If you want to keep doing something, I've had to work out ways of, of being able to fuel the engine to, to keep this going. Because I, I left my job and I, I quit my job four or five years ago in the salon and actually probably about six months after starting doing this. So I wasn't sure of when I was next going to be able to pay the rent or all of those kinds of things. And do something for nothing isn't a charity or not for profit. So the whole idea is it started as a hashtag. And as you said, all the people started using this in their own way. And that was so positive and beautiful. And it wasn't all that easy to begin with. But one thing I would say is, other people using this and doing what they feel with these words is absolutely beautiful and br brilliant. And that's never been a burden. It's the whole idea because, you know, these are four words that are, uh, are something that I came up with on a whim when I was posting about people's stories on Instagram and, and they, they mean something to me, but you know, we all do this on a daily basis. This is a been human since we've we've been walking this earth we had to share to evolve otherwise we wouldn't be here where we are i just think it's important to set reminders of this on a daily basis and that's what do something for nothing acts as for me but to answer your question as far as maybe perhaps the uh i don't know what maybe the the difficult moments for me have been sometimes the the weeks where more admin creeps in than the actual going out and mm -hmm. doing it, mm -hmm. I do sometimes find difficult being very ca candid. Um, I'm very happy to be talking to you now. Um, and I mean that genuinely. <laughs> but, Thank but you. No, no. It, and I hope, I hope that comes across, but it's, it's look, I, I, I am, I can be a chameleon and, and I can, you know, it turns out I can, I can write and I can do so things that, that I didn't think I could do, but it's, it's the days where I'm on my laptop for four or five days a week and I'll go, hang on up. I was supposed to be out on the street today, but I've been sending a few too, too many emails or I've been trying to get back to people on Instagram. And those are the days where my mental, mental health gets a little bit shot, to be honest. And I think, well, actually, that's that's not why I started this. And I think but that's OK, because we're always challenges come and then it's about what you do with them. Am I going to let that carry on for the next week? Am I going to try and work out ways that I can kind of alleviate some of that to be able to get out and do what I need to do? But yeah, that that is probably the biggest thing I'd say is like weeks where I'm I'm staring at a screen more than I am out there in the world, they're not as much fun. <laughs> My guest is Joshua Coombs, the author of Do Something for Nothing and also really the, the genesis of a major movement known by the same phrase, Do Something for Nothing. Uh, the book is available wherever books are sold and the last name spelling is C-O-O-M-B-E-S, Joshua Coombs. Um, I want to uh, ask you now about uh, protecting this movement. When somebody... Uh, with the best of intentions, comes up with something very worthwhile, which certainly this movement is, you will get some other people either with the best of intentions or perhaps not always the best of intentions who want to remodel it, reform it, remake it. Uh, how do you protect the movement to keep it pure and close to your original vision? Well, you, you can't is the truth of that question. And I'm quite aware that you can't because for me in life, 
this especially do something for nothing is not a foundation or a charity it's it's actually an open space and sometimes you know people can use that however they want you know online if you go on the hashtag it's sometimes might someone might put, put up something that's nothing to do with with the ethos of what this is but it means something to me and i think it meaning something to me and hopefully in good intentions it meaning something to other people um that's that's great and and there might be a few a few different ways people express it there might be your version of it but that's okay you know i i i think if i tried to if my focus was to protect the i guess what this is you know the time we're living in now it would be an impossible um endeavor i, I think my honestly alan the most important thing for me is how i wake up each day i mm. focus on as i've i've realized as i'm growing you know i, I used to tr- trying i was a lot more worried i think at least even when i began this that i was more worried about trying to change people's opinions and trying to change people's minds and 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 as you said probably trying to make sure this stays exactly what it was when it began but i've realized the most important thing that, that i can do for sure is is wake up each day and, and try and get back to how i want to live and 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 that involves why I began doing this. It's like when I can trying to be aware of more of other people around me. Some days before I've had coffee, I don't want to talk to anyone. I mean, I'm a nightmare, (laughs) but but it's just the reality of, of, of life is that I can't try and hold on to this too tight. All I can do is focus on me and what, what I can do with my time. And and that's uh, that seems like uh, something I can be a little bit more in control of. Um, You are a a young man. Uh, You are a young man of, uh, of stature and height and strength. Um, there are That's many people. I'm 34 now, but yeah. <laughs> well, I could be a daddy. Let's put it that way. Um, okay, right. <clears throat> but the the fact of the matter is, is that you are able to go into areas which are sometimes not always hospitable and friendly, uh, which is very often where homeless people congregate because they can't go anywhere else. We interviewed a gentleman called Mark Later um, some time back, and he has a, uh, a YouTube channel called Soft White Underbelly. He's a photographer, and he takes pictures, not only pictures, but um, interviews with people uh, who live, if you will, in an underworld lifestyle or a forgotten world lifestyle, mm-hmm. people addicted to drugs, people alcoholics who are, you know, uh, struggling, others who are just severely down on their luck. Uh, so it's uh, people suffering from mental illness. But even he, doing the work that he does, has said that he has to be very, very careful because you never know if somebody is delusional, um, either from general mental illness or perhaps from a lack of substance that they want in their body or completely flipped out by the effects of the chemicals in their body. And so he has to be very, very uh, much alert. Uh, Is there a danger factor that you've encountered? I mean, you've got scissors in your hands and a sharp object and... Have you ever had a nasty situation where you thought this could turn bad or someone has turned against you? Good question. I can't, I can't answer that without. So, so, okay. Well, the way I'd start to, 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 I think rather than give an answer, it's my response, which is let's remember every, everyone's life is subjective and their experiences within that dictate how they feel about, about uh, the, you know, different things. And I think for me, I've been in some places before where the energy is very difficult places that I'm a big, um, big, uh, believer in the fact of trying to read energy when you go anywhere. And I know places like Skid Row, um, places like Kensington neighborhood in Philadelphia, you've got places where, you know, it's at the center of, uh, opioid epidemic that's happening in America right now. You've got people in very difficult mental conditions. And, and I understand that that comes with, with, um, 
an erratic nature sometimes and, and people who are in a difficult position and are suffering but I always try and, and read the energy where I am. Um, usually I don't go up and have a conversation with people if it looks like they don't want to talk to anybody right now. And I think you can tell usually when that's the case, but that is something that I'm, I'm also willing to risk. Like I, I haven't in four, you know, like I said, five years going around different cities in, in different parts of the world. Some, most of the time roaming alone with my backpack, I haven't, I haven't had any uh, encounters that have been violent. I've had negativity and, that hasn't been because someone has been living on the street. That's just been because human beings sometimes are in a difficult position and a difficult place. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my experiences. Are, it's a good, really good question because I'd say that a lot of the time when I give talks about this, um, people will ask the question, you know, have you ever had a bad experience with someone? Because for instance, once I gave, you know, this is say an audience member talking, I gave someone some food and some money and they threw it back in my face and they didn't want to know. So I'm not helping those people again. That's not happening. And I always say, well, that's totally cool. And I get why you wouldn't go and help that person immediately again. But let's not take the fact that they haven't got a roof over their head overnight as anything you'd apply to the next experience. So mm. let's, for instance, make that about people who have a home rather than people who don't have a home so if you had somebody who you know let's we all know what it's like someone trying to park in your space as you're about to or not hold the, uh, the elevator for you or push past you in a door on the way into a restaurant and and you know that feels like that's that's not a nice experience to have but that the fact that someone lives in a house one of those people you wouldn't ever apply that experience and say well from now on everybody with a home who has one somewhere to stay at night, I'm not talking to anymore because, because that's, uh, that, you know, that, that, that's it. That's it. I'm done. I'm going to tie that. I'm going to paint that wide brush stroke over everyone else that I see who has a house. And my point being in a very kind of like, you know, rambly way, and maybe perhaps here is that it's, it's amazing because yes, there's bad experiences. Yes. They come with addiction and mental health issues, but you can walk around this city and, 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 and end up in danger anyway, where I live. And I just think I try and live my life like aware and tuned into kind of the energy around me, but it wouldn't ever stop me doing anything um, that, that I wanted to do and, and interacting with people who, who might be in a difficult situation. So in a nutshell, you would say that, yes, there can be potential uh, danger, but you would not let that preclude the overwhelming effect of doing good. Thanks. I needed a nutshell then. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I did. Oh, oftentimes, you know, what? I'd love, we should, because uh, that is, that was, that was very succinct and I'm, I'm happy for that. Yes, that is, that is what I'm saying. And I, and also just to hammer home the point that I, I wanted to get across too, is that I look, I understand that. There's, there's some, it's difficult sometimes, you know, to, to cut it how it is. You go through certain areas and cities I've been in, in, in America, and this is not to call out anybody who lives in these cities. It's just, it is difficult to say, well, look, there's all these tents around me and all these hundreds of people on the street. And yeah, there's people who are, they're in survival mode and it's not easy sometimes, you know, people mm -hmm. are sometimes it can be very difficult to live in that scenario. So I'm not for one minute going to going to sit here and, and and talk about it's it's a this soundtrack playing with with a beautiful charity moment where I'm handing someone a bag of goodies and they're you know we're all happy. It's like it's not easy. It's a challenge going outside of your comfort zone and and talking to people who who are in a difficult place. And I'm not trying to sensationalize it, but I also believe it's a challenge talking to me when I'm in a difficult place. Sometimes you've got to get through some layers before someone shows you who they really are. And when there's substance abuse, God knows that's, that's a, can be very tricky sometimes. 
Joshua, I don't sense this one bit with you. I am immensely impressed with you and your uh, authentic desire to help people. But there are some, and you will encounter them from time to time on YouTube and elsewhere, people who are very willing to allow themselves to be seen doing good. Uh, and I don't want to cast dispersions on anyone in particular, but the kind of thing I'm talking about is, for instance, it's Valentine's Day and somebody decides to buy a box of chocolates for Valentine's Day and find a woman uh, in a park and says, hey, will you be my Valentine today? And he has a friend take a camera with him. And so they you know, buy her articles of clothing and wine and beer and what have you. And it's a one shot day deal. Uh, and then they're off and they're very quick to post it. There's this whole concept of not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, the, the, the good that we do, we do mm-hmm. really should do in secret. How do you feel about those who are more inclined to bring attention to themselves? And I hasten to add again for any anybody who could possibly even remotely misconstrue what I'm saying here. This does not apply to you, Joshua, at all. But there are persons to whom it does apply. Uh, what's your reaction? How how should one best deal with that? Well, it's it's it's. Do you know what I'm talking intent- about? Have you seen? Yeah, well, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, no, honestly, and I think it's I think it's a good topic of conversation. Uh, you know, it's it's. I've seen. You're, you're talking about the the person helping someone out whilst they're taking a selfie of them. Right. You, right. Exactly. And self-grandizement and, 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 in 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 act yeah. of do goodism. Yeah, and of course, look, if, if if the intention, so intention is everything. I really do believe that with many, many things in life. If, if you go out there with the, the right intentions, I think the rest usually follows. And I think you can always tell when someone's intention was to go out and to be seen doing good rather than to necessarily do good or uplift people around them. So, so my, my version of this is, is it was, a, uh, being honest, it was quite a difficult decision to begin with to, to start posting different stories of people online and, and and whether Instagram was the right platform for that. Cause it can be quite vapid at times and very, um, you know, uh, for me, why well, I, I wouldn't have used it much all that much before. Like I didn't mm-hmm. have a great relationship with it. Yes. So thinking back yes. to that and really trying to empathize with like those early days of, of what, you know, that might be for someone if they're, they're, you know, maybe posturing more than they are actually doing. Um, I'd say that I believe in stories and telling the right kind of story can be the most powerful thing in the world. And when you tell the wrong story, we've seen in history how that can really mess things up. And my version of this is about the stories and about the storytelling. And I know that's clear with the book, obviously, but even with the social media side of it, with other people doing something for nothing, the most important posts for me are the ones where somebody's featured and their voice is being heard that, that might not otherwise. But equally, what's lovely is, if it's genuine and the intention is nice, if you have got a yoga teacher going into a rehabilitation center and volunteering their time, or if you have got some some students going in to have lunch with senior citizens who don't have any family to come in and see them, it gives people, I know it's so overused now, inspiring inspiration, but it's like, it gives people that spark to to think, oh, you know, my I'm really interested in the idea that some people go, yeah, you know what, I could just go and and and, and do that. Maybe they thought the only option was volunteering at a local soup kitchen, which of course is great. Like, do that's that's amazing. But donating money, sure. Mm-hmm. But what I'm really interested in is I talk to a lot of people who sometimes want to help, but they don't quite know how. And I I think then it's important to to think outside the box. And the hub for do something for nothing, it provides some of that. It's a bit it's a bit like, okay, well write down maybe three things you really enjoy and you love doing. And there might just actually be your hobbies and the things you're passionate about, the things right. you might do yes. when you're not working. And then 
write down next to that some areas in your community that you might see that you want to help or you want to change that have been bugging you for a while. Yes. Then you're going to be able to connect the dots yes. immediately. But if you keep looking at those two lists parallel to one another, um, then a little bit of inspiration on the side, I think you, you might find your version of it. And in my experience, just to finish off that, that point is once people find something that they can connect to, to be of service in some way to the community, it's a, it's a, it has more longevity and a more, more long-lasting effect on them and the people around them than volunteering through another network. And and I think, yeah, I just I just think I know for me on a personal level. Look, I I wasn't going into anything I'm doing because I was felt like I was this really altruistic person. But that's the whole point. It, it's it's a hu- human and it's an in- inherent part of us. So mm. so I'm interested in not random acts of kindness because for me that's amazing but i don't think it is random to be kind to someone right i think it's actually part of who we are and i think that it's about trying to just reshape and remold this narrative and actually just awareness this is about trying to be aware when we can not all the time because that's not really realistic but when we can looking up and seeing that other person maybe offering them a smile if you've got a bit more time how are you how are you doing today but I might actually stick around for that answer and be here for five minutes after that. <laughs> if you will permit me, Joshua, I, I, I tend to think of you as we're doing this interview as kind of a secular missionary uh, without the religious fervor, but there's a very, very genuine concern for the human spirit in manifestations uh, in all forms as people present themselves. I would like to have the latter part of this interview concentrate on the pragmatic, uh, and that is not only the experiential of what you've been through, but to translate doing something for nothing, uh, not only in terms of, as you've demonstrated for years and years and years, cutting people's hair, but other things. What are some of the ways that you've seen people manifest doing something for nothing? And, and, and it must start surely with simply individuals looking at what they already have and saying, oh, I have this and I, I can apply it in other forms. Yeah. How have you witnessed that? And what are some of the effective techniques that listeners right now can take if they feel so motivated? Yeah, I think it's a really, really beautiful question to sort of hammer home what this is all about. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, like, you know, we've had people going in to have lunch with people who don't have any um, family, like elderly citizens, um, and obviously people using tangible skills. Like, as I said, there was a yoga teacher who went in and volunteered that time in a rehabilitation center. But there's been really tangible skills as well like there was there's vets my friend jade who's become a friend i remember after about three months of this this starting and me going out and and cutting hair on the street and trying to tell these stories she was working in a a veterinary like practice looking after animals in in north london and a lot of the people the friends that i'd made had animals who were who were on the street and and they love these these uh, these animals and they amazing companionship while they're on the street but they don't always know the best place to take them to get looked after when something goes wrong. And, and, and she started coming out on the street with me and I know not everyone's a vet, but I'm talking about a tangible skill here where she, mm. she came out and started looking looking after their dogs. And now that's transpired to become street vet UK, which is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of vets volunteering for her. But on the day today, if you haven't got this, like, I know it's, it's easy for me to say, Oh, you know, I, I give haircuts. Jade, who I just mentioned, she's a vet. Well, I'm not expecting you to go and go to veterinary school and, and train to to do just to go out on the street and, and help. So honestly, on a day-to-day level, one thing I would say is that start with a recognition and placing a higher value on your time, the one skill that we all have. Because um, I could talk to you about 
clothes, food, um, people helping out with with different belongings, or, sorry, different material things that, that we could give people. But underneath them would do something for nothing is usually this connection. I mean, take clothes, for, in- for instance, which is obviously something we all know how to do. Go and donate our clothes, a local charity shop or, um, you know, a thrift store or anything that you, could, you can do to, to sort of pass them on. But there was these guys in Sydney, this couple in Sydney, Australia, and they actually um, were looking at their designer wardrobe full of clothes that they didn't enjoy anymore and they weren't wearing. And rather than just donating them, they thought, you know what we're going to do? Why don't we just go and set a clothes rail up out in the city? We're going to set up this rail and, and, and just see if anyone comes along and takes them from us. And people who were surrounding and living on the street in the center of Sydney where they were started to come along and have a chat and take some of these jackets and these t-shirts and they had a mirror there that they showed people so they really got people infused into how they look not just taking these things and moving on and look long to skip ahead and they're now called pass it on clothing and they have haircuts too and they have food and they get to know these people on an intimate level and work out how to help them beyond just giving them a shirt on their back I, I think Whatever you do, for, so for me, my through the years I've been doing what I've been doing, the haircut, I 100%, it's a vehicle for me now. I love cutting hair still, but honestly, the reason I go back out and do what I do, I sometimes forget what I'm doing when I'm cutting hair. I just, I want to, <laughs> yes. I want to listen to people and yes. I want to connect with them. Yes. And whether, whatever you're using, and it's so beautiful to hear about what you get up to, Alan, it's like your, 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 your tangible skills are great because I'm sure you've had moments where through educating people and, and, and providing that, which is so important. Um, you've had experiences where you've seen and, uh, the, the, the benefits based on, on, on what it is you're actually doing and what the knowledge you're implying. But it, I think what's probably stayed with you, I assume is the people and, and what it meant to them and yes. maybe the time that you spent with them. And I think when this is all said and done, I think that's really important. And I have to just, just finish off by saying that, I put it in the safekeeping of people. If you read, uh, you know, the book mm. and, 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 and go onto my Instagram of stories that I've met of people who are living on the street. I always ask people, what is it that can pe- people can do more for you? How can people help? And of course we could talk politically, politically about affordable housing and all the things that we need to change from above. That's a definite, but the passerby, the day-to-day person who's on street level with them, who isn't tucked away in Westminster here or, um, you know, in the White House in America, it's like, it's 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 the day-to-day person seeing them, yes. recognizing they're a human being, that they're not just a charity case. Sympathy, I have to say, is quite a useless emotion mm-hmm. and and trying to build a bridge of empathy is really the most important thing. So start with a smile, start with how are you, start with listening. And then, and then from there, I'm, I'm, if you're really invested in, in going out there and being a service, I'm sure more things will come from that. And if I may say this, Joshua, just to add a, an, another layer to this, which uh, I'm uh, absolutely convinced you're aware of too, but just for the point of expansion in, in this discussion, uh, there are people who may not be even in tents on the streets of you know Los Angeles or Philadelphia or elsewhere, uh, who are just getting by, eking out a living uh, sparingly. Whereas if somebody would just show them how to work a computer, uh, my wife recently did this for somebody who who was able to get by on minimum wage jobs. And she spent time uh, at our house showing this this woman how to work with the computer because she was terrified of computers. Well, she got a, a very nice job afterwards and uh, in the medical profession. 
and it changed her life and it changed the life of her family. So I think also, uh, if I may say this, Joshua, we have a tendency to look at the the the, the absolute uh, street level of things and just fail sometimes to recognize that, yeah, there may be people who are not on the street too who can very much use a hand uh, with some skill that you may possess or connect them to somebody else that gives them a leg up in all manner of things. I mean, that's what it's all about. Joshua, the key thing with you is love. You're a loving person. You're a sensitive person. You're a caring person. And, you know, we, we can speak about love, which is fine, which is can be emotive. But as you have indicated, it's actually doing, uh, taking that love into doing and making it a verb. And you've done that splendidly well. And I am so grateful for you as an inspiration to others, not only uh, in the UK, but on this side of the pond too, in, in the USA and elsewhere, as we've heard, Australia and all over the place. Um, thank you for the encouragement that your very presence has and your voice, because uh, I, I spoke about you being a, a kind of a secular missionary, secular or otherwise, religious or otherwise. Um, you're doing godly things, and it is so lovely to know that there are people like you having a tremendous impact. The book is entitled Doing Something for Nothing. The author is Joshua Coombs. That's C-O-O-M-B-E-S. The book is available wherever books are available. Uh, Please pick it up. This is the story of a man, as I've just indicated, with a very, very good heart, a hairstylist. And he realized that he couldn't fix every social ill, not every problem in the world, but he saw a chap that needed a haircut. And with his expertise as a, as a hairdresser or hairstylist himself, he thought, aha, I can take out a comb, I can take out a pair of scissors, and I can do this thing. And in the process, he learned about humanity and himself. And the meaning of life, I don't think, is too far a stretch to say, if indeed part of that is love. Uh, is there any question, Joshua, that I haven't asked you that you really wish I had? Well, one thing I'd like to mention, it's been really great talking to you, is just that I feel an important point is that with every person you see who's in a very difficult position, um, you've also got someone who's, um, who's, who's for me, I believe, uh, we all love stories of redemption, right? We read books, we watch Netflix, we love to see rags to riches, we love to, just to see someone who's come from nothing and turn into a success. And I feel that in every single person that I see, there's the potential for that. And we, we have to, for me, I just believe in people. That's my message. Without people, you're nothing. And I feel that you, you got to see that in someone's life, that's just a certain chapter, no matter how ugly it may look from the outside. And I say that based on society's perception, but there's, um, there's a story in there and you don't know where it can go if you give someone your time and give them a bit of hope. Joshua, you are a music enthusiast like I am. So what tune would you like us to go out on that you think is indicative of what we've been talking about and means something to you? Take your time. (laughs) Yeah, you're a true music enthusiast. I know that feeling like, oh my gosh, how could I possibly come up with one singular tune? Could I go for, even though I was talking about The Clash earlier, I'd like to um, go out with Bob Marley, Ride, Natty, Ride. Ride, Natty, Ride. You've got it. Joshua Coombs, thank you. Bless you. The book is entitled Do Something for Nothing. Yes, really, go do it as soon as you listen to this program. Take care and God bless, my friend. And I hope that one day in the future you'll join us again. Thank you so much. I'd love to connect in the future again. Cheers. (laughs) 
You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.